Hello, fellow watch lovers, nerds, enthusiasts, or however you identify. This is 40 and 20, the Watch Clicker Podcast with your hosts, Andrew, and my good friend Everett. Here, we talk about watches, food, drinks, life, and other things we like. Everett, how are you? Besides Sans Beverage, should I run downstairs real quick and get you a beverage? I'll be okay. I'm uncomfortable with that. I'll just take one of yours. You can have a bush light. All right. In fact, I kind of insist. You insist? I'm a little uncomfortable with you not having a beverage <laughs> while we record. Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Just, uh, you know, getting ready to talk about my my favorite thing, watches, and that's always fun. Uh, and working, working, and and living. My family has gone south for... For, for winter? For the summer, yes. Yeah. They haven't gone that far south. Uh, they, but they have gone, they have gone south for not quite two weeks, I think. So that's a little, uh, it's always different, right? You come home and it's like, there's fewer dishes to do. There's none dishes to do. <laughs> but also fewer people that I love to keep me company. So yeah. 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 How are you? And since you're keto, you also don't get to do the thing that I do. Like when, when my family leaves for a week, I order several pizzas. Oh uh, yeah, and I exist on those. Yeah, well, that's right. I, you know, I'm a big fast food guy, as you know, and uh, so I oftentimes, when I'm home alone, will have fast food, uh, and I'm not going to do that this time around. I will say, I gave Calvin, my 18 month old, the mashed potatoes from KFC mm-hmm. that I procured. Yeah. I've never seen him eat anything. Oh, he dug them so fast. He just like, I mean, the way mashed potatoes should be consumed by the handful to the face. Yeah. He then took the time to lick his hands <laughs> before he moved on to other fares. You know, I went to, I did. So I did. Speaking of fast food, did have fast food tonight because I was kind of running late coming home from work or not running late, but just didn't have a ton of time to stop and get food. And uh, so I got, you know, some grilled chicken. And some coleslaw from KFC, which is not great for keto, but also totally within my macros. And uh, and the lady was like, well, look, I can give you that, but if you, but it's cheaper if I give it to you on a meal and you get a soda. And I was like, okay, this, you know, I'll just do that. And I was like, but don't give me the, the biscuit or the mashed potatoes. And they just included them all anyway. So I did have a bite of mashed potatoes with gravy. And mashed potatoes are so good. Their coleslaw is really good. I, I I finally I think honed in the clone homemade version. Yeah, it's just like sugar and vinegar, right? Pretty much, yeah. And mayonnaise. Yeah, equal parts. <laughs> <laughs> and a splash of cabbage. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, but they I like their little you know little pieces of cabbage. Yeah, I dig it. I I'm not I, I'm a sucker for fast food, man. I uh I started doing my clone, but rather than like food processing the cabbage, I just. I just thin slice it. Yeah, you just chop it, right? Yeah. Yeah. How are you? Good. I, uh, I'm on the tail end of my weekend. Mm hmm. And it's hot here. It's warm. So, it's not hot. It's not hot yet. No, it's hot. It was, it was 80 ish today. It was north of 90. <clears throat> not today. Felt north of 90. It was north of 90. Two days, yesterday and the day before. Yeah, we've had some hot ones. Uh, but today, in the throes of our of our w- w- probably two weeks of heat that we get where we live, mm-hmm. 
I said, you know what I'm going to do? Yard work. <laughs> dumb. I mowed the lawn. You dumb. And then my neighbor, my back fence neighbor, has bamboo thicket. Have you talked to this person yet? Or are they just a, a faceless, nameless bamboo <laughs> they're just, farmer? They're just, uh, uh, what's her name, with the good hair? Becky. Becky with the good hair. They're just Becky with the good hair back there, but she got bamboo. Um, no, I haven't talked to him. And I'm tempted. I, I'll probably go over next week. Are, are you suggesting that Becky's cute? The bamboo farmer is cute? There's a lot of people that live there. I'm assuming at least one of them is Oh, cute. is that the farm behind you? Yeah. Oh, <clears throat> they have cows. Do they? Or Yeah. Yes. Oh. They have cows. I didn't make this connection. I run by, I run by their farm. I think, Chickens and cows. I and, think, regardless, one person there must be cute. You know, law of averages. Uh, but they have bamboo thicket. Uh, about as dense as for those of you familiar with the uh, early 2000s video game Bushido Blade. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about. No, I know what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. That's what I got going on, on behind the fence line behind me, which means that I have a manageable but constant battle against bamboo. So today I... <sighs> Really, I, st- I upped my game in the battle and I started cutting out roots, which, why? It's hot. Did you use your Bushido blade? I used a hatchet. Same. <laughs> and, a, and a pickaxe. But I, I, don't, I don't have a katana that I think would be suitable to be slicing <laughs> into the earth. I have katanas for other purposes, but not for earth slicing. Um, but yeah, so that's what I did today. So I'm a little bit tired. Yeah. A little hot still. I yeah. took a cold shower and I turned my hot tub down to like 85 <laughs> it's too hot to have a hot tub so i'm gonna pop in the hot tub at 85 and just leech out some heat from my body today yeah. good 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 it tells me i have to get my filter I, it has an alert on my control panel that says change filter you think it's just time-based can you just reset it and get another cycle uh you know i have the 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 owner's manual for my microwave my stove my oven my fridge not the hot tub. There was like a solid, <clears throat> I don't know, year of my my owning a Brita where it was I needed a new filter, and it was one of those smart ones where if you didn't, you couldn't just reset it. You had to pull the thing out. Oh yeah. So I would just open it up, pull the filter out, and stick the filter back in. We had a when we were living in Texas, we had one of those countertop Brita water filters, and we were just burning up filters such that we just pulled it out. We just had warm water on the counter for some reason. <laughs> Like it's it was just a decanter. It, yeah, it came the same out of the tap, and we appreciated it for. There was a, we had some bad storms roll through at the end of one summer, and it churned up our reservoir, so everyone's water tasted like algae. Mm, yum! But we had a couple gallons sitting on the counter that was warm and not algae. That's good. Yeah, that's good. You know, in Oregon, we really have pretty good water almost all of the time, but everybody still loves their filters. I, I mostly just drink out of the tap. Uh, I remember being a kid in Portland and. Like once a year, we would transition off of the standard water system onto well water, and you could taste it. Yeah, just immediately off of the reservoirs. Yeah, yeah we'd, they'd we'd pull it right off the tops of the hills. Yep, and then into the wells, and be like, Ugh, "Yeah, what is this?" And it was better than any water I've ever had anywhere else in the world. You know, the best water I've ever had, besides here, because the water's really good. But the tap water, Fuji is from the bottle, Springfield, Massachusetts. Mm. 
Springfield, Massachusetts, of all places, it's a shithole. Uh, I apologize if you're in Springfield, Massachusetts. I liked much of it, but also it was a shithole. But they had fantastic tap water, just hmm. for inexplicable reasons. I'm sure they're explicable reasons, uh, but I don't know the explications. First time I traveled out of the Pacific Northwest was to Las Vegas, and it was for a soccer tournament. They do not have good tap water. <laughs> First time I've been out of the Pacific Northwest, I'm in like the seventh grade. And uh, that's sad, but I yeah, I'm in the seventh grade, and uh, I we're in our hotel room, and I crank up the faucet to pour a glass of water, and just as soon as it passed my lips, it went right back into the sink, and I was like, "What is this?" <laughs> yeah, it's a different world. Yeah, it's yucky. That's why people have Britas. Yeah, I've since been to Las Vegas and have drank water right from the tap like an animal but <laughs> well, it's just minerals yeah just minerals that's my thing though i just you know when you get drunk you you need things and you need them now there's no there's no time for a delay <laughs> <laughs> well we are i think i believe i i said suspect nine minutes i'm going to talk about watches today sometime are you prepared for this no no <laughs> <laughs> no uh well we're, we're gonna talk about uh we're gonna talk about a very specific type of watch today yes and maybe not specific at all but we're gonna talk about swiss watches i think an idea maybe maybe an idea we're going big here we're going big so so really scale wise with no. without having without having narrowed down on the topic too much which we wanted which we want to do sometimes right we just sort of throw out some articles and try to come up with a show based on those articles and, you know, using our knowledge and our ability to Google, uh, come up with a, 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 an idea in this case, an idea about an idea. So, so really the question for today is what makes a watch Swiss made? I was going to say, which makes, what makes a watch Swiss and it's usually what, where it gets its passport from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome guys so yeah our thought today is what makes a watch bear the swiss made stamp at the six o'clock what does it mean and why does it matter yes yeah yeah that sums it up and and the answer is it means <laughs> it nothing and it doesn't as per usual buy what you like so uh Thank yeah, you just for joining it. us yeah. for this episode of 40 and 20. <laughs> you know, I what I've noticed when we when we tackle these ep- episodes like this, what what I'm what I'm realizing, and what I what I'm kind of hoping that you, the listener, and you, Everett, are realizing, is that all these things that we build up as the as the gold standards in watches and in urology and in value proposition in this expensive hobby really meaningless they're all marketing schemes it's like the expiration date on your tums well, well they're, I, they're put there to sell more tums i i, I both understand <laughs> accept and uh you disagree and i get I why you disagree. disagree i don't disagree hold on i accept i accept the premise i hate it though and i think if what you're saying is true we should stop recording this podcast i think it's fun because we're letting you look behind our kimonos be, because <laughs> There are some there there are people in this industry who become 
disenfranchised with the idea of watches because of the things that we talk about in the watch world and it gets sort of annoying and then you start to learn about things and you realize there's meaninglessness that's pervasive Mm. in the in the questions and then you say things like it doesn't fucking matter buy what you like none of it fucking matters it's all stupid eat my dicks and then oh i'm the first half of that and then it just sucks right and then it just sucks like why are we doing this if it's not interesting so for me i reject that and when i am in that camp i just stop doing it because i think it's wonderful and all of these little things all of these nuance that i'm going to decompress joe are things that make this wonderful for me i love it okay i can dig that and i appreciate that but what it comes down to it the the nuances are awesome because it's fun it's quirky little things that you know and as a serial hobbyist and also an actualist I love knowing those things because I can actually the fuck out of people because of the things that I know. <laughs> and what's more, though, is I love knowing these things and, and being able to recognize that they're not what the world at large makes them out to be. It's liberating to not feel encumbered by, well, it doesn't say Swiss made at the bottom. It's not a chronometer Oh, I don't, I don't, I mean, I think really my next purchase is going to be a, you know, an, an antiquated metal that is going to just, you know, fall apart while I wear it or it, there's no neck beardiness to it for me as neck beardy as you and I are. Mm-hmm. This is all, these are all things that are reinforcing the joy of the hobby for me of like, That's man, right. I like this and I like it because of these things, these other things that you tell me why I should like it aren't actually why they're cool little pieces, but that's not the thing that I like. And all, and also coffee doesn't actually dehydrate you nor does beer. So fuck off. No, no it takes seven gallons of beer to make five gallons or seven <laughs> gallons of water to make five gallons of beer. That makes beer concentrated <laughs> water. So, so, uh, with that, what does Swiss made mean? Oh, what does it mean? Uh, actually, I'm going to stop you. Do it. Because I have a feeling you're going to talk about boring shit, and I want to talk about things that are not boring first. Is that okay? Yeah. I want to talk about the history of Swiss watchmaking. Why the fuck is Geneva the capital of the watchmaking world? Because they were neutral during World War II. No. Yes. (laughs) It, It actually is because they were neutral during the Protestant Wars. And there's okay, I accept. Continue a lot more to that, but Switzerland, famously in the 20th century, neutral AF, but they did not start there. Switzerland has been neutral for centuries before that. It's kind of their thing, perhaps a millennia. It is their thing, and it's, I think, it's easy to assume that that's a new thing because of world wars, but it's not, it goes back very very long time <laughs> what, what, what that's you, the way you chose to say that oh why not uh, so in so so first these two things there's two things that are happening in the beginning of the 16th century and they're happening independently of one another uh but importantly happening at the same time so so two things are happening one 
portable clocks. So clock making 13th, 14th, 15th century is, is making, you know, relatively rapid advancements. You know, if you consider before the 13th and 14th centuries or, you know, before the 14th century, really, we don't have clocks, mechanical clocks as we think of them today. Mm -hmm. And, and so then these, these developments are happening relatively rapid, 200, 300 years. This industry is born and people are understanding how to make clocks. At the beginning of the 16th century, portable clocks are invented in, in, and remember this, in Nuremberg, Germany. Yeah, right. Nuremberg, Germany. And that knowledge very quickly spreads to the other sort of international epicenters of clockmaking, which are uh, Blois, uh, Blois, France, as well as kind of Augsburg, Germany as well. So mm -hmm. you've got Nuremberg, Augsburg, Blois, France are, are really the international capitals of clockmaking. Well, it's fascinating with these, the, the, you, get, you get these named individuals who are responsible for proliferating this information. And they're really just the guys who went someplace and shared it someplace that it stuck. Yeah. There's dozens, hundreds perhaps of people who from Nuremberg took this knowledge out. They went in and evangelized this technology and it stuck in just a couple places. And their names will never be written in the pages of history, but these guys who did... Like they're there. They're there. They're immortalized in neurology because their little shop that they started up and joined forces with the right person stuck around. Well, and that's a great term that you use, right? Evangelizing. Because at the same, almost almost the same exact moment, when we talk about history, we're looking at about a 10-year period of time. The portable clock, uh, we're not able to peg it. It's sort of in the 1515 time frame. Mm -hmm. um, but in 1517, there's another really, really historically important thing that happens in Nuremberg. A student, uh, a student by the name of John Calvin, uh, as a homework assignment, excuse me, not John Calvin, uh, Martin Luther. Yeah, I was going to say, that's not right. As a homework assignment, sort of posts his homework assignment. So, so for, first, can, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a religion nerd. So, I think when we think about Martin Luther posting his uh, his mandate on the doors of the church, it's this really violent revolutionary act. It, he was doing a fucking homework assignment, uh, literally just a student turning in his homework that he put it in the place where they're turning in their homework. And so people start to read this and he's really sort of trashing the Catholic church, but not meaningfully, not like he's a Catholic, right? He's yeah. doing Catholic things. He's doing a homework assignment about maybe some things that the Catholic church has that are problematic. So Martin Luther in Nuremberg kicks off the, the Protestant revolution, which because of the people involved, this Nuremberg event spreads to other places uh, like blue off France. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so at the time, um, the group of people in Blois, France, who are making clocks, just happen to be sort of culturally connected. And this group of folks will quickly catch on alongside a fellow named John Calvin, will, will quickly catch on to the Protestant Revolution and become, quote-unquote, Protestants. And these, these French Huguenots, or Huguenots, as we now know them, uh, kind of get a bad rap, right? As like sort of violent, militant, 
And, and, and that's maybe in, at times accurate. But, you know, as we know, we, we look at people who protest and, and in particular who are persecuted negatively. But these folks kind of get driven out of France eventually. Mm-hmm. And they end up in Geneva, of all places, because John Calvin, my man, is this very, very prominent Protestant, later, you know, known for Calvinism. He shows up in Geneva, and these Huguenots, Huguenots, kind of follow him there. And these guys just pop up in Geneva at this perfect time. So the Protestant Revolution's kicking off. John Calvin shows up in Geneva. He's instantly popular. He's also kind of a revolutionary, sometimes violent, sometimes a little scary, uh, but very popular. And the Swiss government likes him. The Swiss folks eventually come to like him. And he kicks off a series of reforms in the Swiss government whereby austerity and piety are prized so much that they do these huge reforming cultural social changes like something I can't even imagine, outlawing jewelry, outlawing gaudy jewelry. So Geneva at the time has come from this long history of um, artisans, artisans, jewelry makers, right? And the Swiss government outlaws jewelry. So now what we have is this giant industry of goldsmiths, enamelists, really uh, talented artisans who have these talents to make jewelry. And we've got all these Huguenot watchmakers who have fled France in the diaspora, ended up in Geneva. And these folks, naturally, by way of their persecution, maybe not persecution in the jewelry maker's world, but certainly I'm sure it felt like that. By way of their hardship, maybe. By way of their hardship, that's right. So we've got unemployed jewelry makers and immigrant Huguenots, and they just find each other. Because portable clocks... Nay, watches are not illegal under the Swiss rule. It's a tool. It's practical. And so in the new Swiss law, watches become the craft du jour. And you've got the most concentrated marriage of talented people literally in the world at the time. And the watch industry, as we know it today, is born. And and it'll be two centuries or so before it really gels. But that is short and sweet how Geneva, Switzerland, becomes the hub of watchmaking. And and remains so, because it, uh, among those changes are also their commitment to neutrality and global conflict. Yeah, that's right. Because that was critical to their rise in the 20th century. To, not, not to their rise necessarily, but to their... Um, enduring success, right? In, enduring success to to maintaining their foothold, uh, because you see globally, watch industries closing, well, being reallocated, being appropriated to the war efforts, and they right. remain. And and interestingly, and we'll jump forward, and I'm I'm sure we're going to go back in that post World War II era. You're still seeing the Swiss crank out shit, not good stuff. You're you're seeing him crank out poor watches, and then they turn they crank it up. 
They say, you know what, we're we're gonna we're we're gonna take this this market share that we have and we're gonna do it right. And that's where they just they just took off at a sprint. They had the market share, they had the manufacturing capacity, capabilities, artisanship, and they just Well, so that's really yeah, I I mean you're right. That is that is really step three in you know in the three step process mm-hmm. which, which puts Switzerland at the forefront, right? So you, you've got Protestant Revolution, John Calvin, the Huguenots, mm-hmm. and then and then after you know seventeenth eighteenth century is when watchmaking really becomes a thing internationally, um, and I I think that looking back you see British watchmakers, you see. American watchmakers, you a fair see, amount, yeah. you see French watchmakers. You have uh, three real big powers and well-known countries, uh, nations that are making watches. None of which are Switzerland. Switzerland obviously is making watches at the time, but but they're making a, they're doing something a little bit different. Instead of making haute horology, they are the Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. of of the watch industry uh you know folks like them the, they're the honda of of the watch industry <laughs> that's, that's right you know you've got <clears throat> folks like Perelet breguet but really importantly daniel jean richard is this fellow and daniel jean richard amongst others come up with this idea of establissage oh that sounded sexy say it again but slower <laughs> establissage yep we're going to pause here for a few minutes. <laughs> and I do think that's a French word, but but really what it refers to is the decentralization mm-hmm. of the watchmaking process, right? So mass making, mass making parts in a decentralized manner, which as we know, speeds up production times. Yep. Decreases costs. Yep. Increases quality control. Increases yep. quality control, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So where England, you know, Great Britain, the United States, France are still very much centralized in-house production organizations. Um, we've got we've got Switzerland that's making that's making watches, clocks faster, cheaper. And getting them into people's pockets at an increased rate. Now, quality wasn't always the priority, although it does become the priority over time. Mm-hmm. My understanding, and and this is this this might just be something kicking around in my brain for no reason. My understanding is that a lot of the Swiss component manufacturing companies bear the name of the like Valley or Fjord kind of. Not not Ford, they're in Switzerland, but <laughs> uh, of like the valley yeah. or the or the kind of mountainous region that they reside in, and and I, I have not, none no names that are coming to the top of my head, but that's their that was that what that hood did. They were the hand makers, and then the, you know from the valley over, they were the dial makers, yeah. and they all coalesced into the assembly plant. And I think that has to do, and I think we'll we'll. This might be the right time to segue into it. In the seventies, nineteen seventy-one. This is a perfect time. Is when Switzerland codified government code into law what it means to earn the Swiss-made 
stamp on the dial of a watch. And those things all coalescing down into the single production really lent itself to the codification. So um, in 1971, I'm going to keep saying that because I think that's what it is. 1971. 1971. The Swiss government created a list of things that made a watch Swiss. Number one, it had to be a movement from Switzerland. Number two, and that's basically the extent of that rule, right? They yeah, don't tell it, you a whole lot else. The about. movement of the watch was Swiss. <laughs> the movement was encased in Switzerland, which creates a loophole for rule number one. If if you're if you're if you're listening closely, friends, you will see some opportunities. The final inspection of a watch was conducted by the manufacturer in Switzerland. The manufacturer who is in Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> and at least 50% of the value of the watch had to be manufactured in Switzerland. I think currently it's 60% the value of the movement. Yeah, well, we can talk about that a little bit more, but uh, because because there's the quote-unquote 60% rule, which sometimes means 60%, sometimes means other things. Well, and I think, I think the, the language of it currently is 60% the value of the movement which is generally the most expensive piece of the watch. Well, so that's not that's that's not exactly accurate. So so you so I th- I think you nailed it, right? This is the old rule, the the traditional rule for Swiss made. Um and and it was problematic in a lot of ways, right? You you referred to the movement needs to be a Swiss movement. Well, that could mean anything, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they be didn't a Swiss guy just cutting it out. Yeah, that, that's right. They and they didn't really describe it a lot better than that in the rules. You know, certainly a little bit better than that. But what you found was a lot of companies that were just really aggressively cheating. Uh, you, you know, well, because of rule number two. <laughs> because of rule number two, <laughs> all you have to do exactly. is close that bitch up in Switzerland, and it's good. That, that's right, and, and so. In the early teens, the 20 teens, as it were. 2016, I think, uh, is when it was. Uh, or earlier than that. So like 2010, 2011, 2012, you get this big international group that's that's kind of grumpy. Uh, and they're, and and this, this group is surprisingly not necessarily comprised solely of Swiss watchmakers, uh, but rather of just widespread industry folks that are, you know, uh, mad about the privacy within the Swiss, Swiss industry, uh, frustrated with the the lack of transparency, frustrated with quality, mm-hmm. um, and overall just the the unreliability of that phrasing. So uh, this group sort of gets together and in a in a big concerted effort in 2013, summer of 2013, these guys get together and start hammering out a code for a new rule um and it gets fought on both sides folks that say you know further codification is just going to complicate things you know more rules means more opportunity for loopholes and cheating it's going to denigrate the overall process which is actually pretty good 
Uh, and then on the other side, you have folks say, no, it, even what you guys are pitching isn't strong enough. We need 80%. We need uh, more even. And so like with all political things, pressure on all sides. In June of 2013, they... Uh, Switzerland, the government, this group, announces the rules, which are to go into place, as you said, January of 2017, so, okay. so much later. Uh, it's about a three and a half year, you know, because everybody needs an opportunity, right? Catch up, get your shit in order. Yeah. Sweep some shit under the rug. That's right. <laughs> find the loophole and change nothing. And, and change nothing. That's right. Yeah. Figure out how you can keep doing what you're doing and follow the rules. And and I even even under the current parameters, it's the it's not a hard bar to achieve. For example, the American made standard is ninety percent. Yeah, all or substantially all, right? Yeah. It's, yeah the, it's the, it's not codified ninety percent, but it's subs, all or substantially all is kind of accepted at 90 percent and our trade commission is pretty aggressive about at you know famously shinola uh got whacked and and a few other companies you know i think maybe uh uh cameron weiss got whacked you know mm -hmm. folks are getting whacked on by saying made in the united states when in fact not all or substantially all of your shit is u.s made and it, and that's i think the the big difference with the with the 90 percent is you can't really outsource anything there's a few things that you must in order to to make something affordable but the i think the 60 percent rule leaves a lot of room for outsourcing of manufacturing absolutely of of big pieces absolutely. cases can still be made in china well especially because so we're talking now so so previously 50% and now 60% mm -hmm. we're we're not talking about weight we're not talking about the number of parts the the you, you know the area that the parts comprise or the volume they encompass we're just talking about the value yeah. we're just talking about the value so if you consider Making something in Switzerland is five or six times more money than making something in northern China, perhaps, uh, and maybe more than that. I don't know. I've just made that number up. I don't. I don't know what the multiple is. But if you consider how I much, I think that's probably a reasonable guess. More expensive it is to make. You're looking at you know, maybe actually by quantity, depending on how you measure this, you know, five to ten percent. Because you can make all the expensive shit in China and then, or, you know, somewhere where you've got much cheaper production costs and make just a few things for, you know, the, the most expensive things in Switzerland, the, the handmade movements can all be made and assembled in Switzerland. And even with everything else that goes into that watch, still be sitting in the neighborhood of probably 75% the cost. So you make the movement in China. No, you make the movement you, in Switzerland and everything else, that drives your price up. Or even yeah. perhaps you make the movement in China in a, in, a, in your factory, which is quality controlled and, and everything. And, and then you bring it over and you just apply Perlage to the rotor in Switzerland and now you've got the 60% number. Yeah. <laughs> Right, because yeah, that's expensive too. Because that's fucking expensive, and it winds up being sixty percent of the total cost. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, if you were to make the movement here, you know, you might be 
five or six times that multiple in terms of cost. And then you're not making money. And then you're not making money. Well, you're making money. The, the markup is insane. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, um, well so, so we've got a few specifics about w- what means makes Swiss made. But I think it's important that we talk about the the breakdown first. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Because there's, there's a few different terms here that are defined. In particular, three, really. So you've got Swiss movement, which you've kind of talked about already, mm-hmm. right? So it's assembled and inspected in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Which is what Shinola was doing in the United States, and it didn't meet muster. That's right. That's right. But 60% of your total manufacturing costs are generated in Switzerland. Swiss quality construction, and 50% of the value of the parts and 60% of the manufacturer costs. It's a little weird the way they they crunch these numbers around. You can tell that there's they're writing in opportunities for folks to do specific things, and it's not clear to me what. They're building around the, I think, they're building around the fact that manufacturing large parts, cases, bracelets... Mm-hmm is prohibitive, cost prohibitive to do in Switzerland. They also don't want big manufacturing plants there. They like that it's outsourced and somewhere else in the world. They wanted to create the opportunity for them to remain elsewhere in the world. I think that's right. And, and and I'd be, you know, it would be wonderful to be a fly on the wall in these negotiations, right? Because when you see like 50%, 60% here, you know, uh, two sixty percent, but they mean different things, but they look the same, and you have to sort of, you know, pull out your Black's Law dictionary to understand what they mean. Or I guess it wouldn't be Black's, whatever the Swiss version of the Black's is. Black's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you wonder, like, okay, someone's <clears throat> trying to asp- achieve a specific goal, but because the industry, the companies are so opaque, I think it would be really tough for guys like us to to be able to sort that out and i wonder what the lobby is what the swiss watch company like the swatch group lobby is and it's super powerful right i mean because that's their chief export i mean that's it the i mean it's not it that their economy is not entirely based on watches but that's a i mean that's the the equivalent of the fucking gun lobby that's right that's right they got some ass there (laughs) (laughs) so that's a swiss movement yeah Swiss parts is essentially the same stuff, mm-hmm. but assembled in QC somewhere else. Acceptably, yeah. And those are your two like subcategories. Obviously, starting with Swiss parts, then a little bit better is Swiss movement. Yeah. And then you've got Swiss made, and this is the granddaddy. Big Papa, as it were. The coveted Swiss made label. And there's, I think, four or five, depending on how you count on specific points here. I think there's four with one sub point in one of them. I think part three has a sub point. So as you said earlier, yeah. specifically movement is cased in Switzerland. It's got to have a Swiss movement now mm-hmm. that we've defined Swiss movement. So Swiss movement cased in Switzerland, Swiss quality control, and notably a Swiss made lo- label. So in order to label your watch Swiss made, you've got to have a Swiss made label. Okay. Weird. Uh, Production costs based in Switzerland have to be so. So your pr- production costs have to be based in Switzerland. That's a category in and of mm-hmm. itself. Plus the sixty percent requirement for quartz watches, and, and for mechanicals we go up to eighty percent. Eighty percent, yeah. And and theoretically, all your tech development has to be based in Switzerland. Whatever that means. 
Because I don't think it, it seems to me like it would be virtually impossible with Zoom to mandate that. I think it just means that there's there's headquarters. I mean, you look at somebody like IWC, who's an American dude who went to Switzerland and started a company and is now a Swiss watch brand. Right. I mean, I, I, SWC. It, IWC. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, and SWC. Also, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I, what, it, what it comes down to is I think, I think that that mechanical 80% was a, uh, was a win from the watch lobby to say, please let us manufacture our cases. In China. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, I get the feeling that you've got really pretty seriously different business practices as you move up the chain. Right. So I have no doubt that a company like Rolex or Patek uh, are doing upwards of high 90s, if not 100% of their manufacturer, at manufacturer process design, everything. Sourcing of materials, though, that's the that that's going to cut into it. Perhaps, yes, yeah. source materials. But there's an exception for unavailable materials. You so, do not have to factor in unavailable materials. Did you read that in the uh, Bloch's Law, Law Dictionary? <laughs> I did. That's okay. right. <laughs> um, exactly blocks because one of the things that uh, that i was actually i was curious about when i when i got into this was okay so what makes up that delta that they're willing to seed being manufactured elsewhere and and my first thought was jewel manufacturing because that's an industry that is dripping in mystery do you know do you know where they're manufactured i don't know they're from a an extent I spent most of my time researching this, trying to find companies that manufacture jewel bearings. Now they exist. Rubies. They're, they're out there, right? Ju- rubies, sapphire, you know, take your pick of, uh, I forget the name of it. They all have the same name when they're synthetic. They're just different colors. Um, there's not many that you can find. And there's none of them that have a... Um, potent enough web presence to make me think that they have cornered the market in providing jewel bearings to Rolex and IWC and Patek. Turns out it's that guy, that international watchman, NATO strap guy, Ron Sabo. It's him. (laughs) It's him. He's the guy. He just has a he just has a ruby farm in his basement with you know other things, and we won't talk about the other things because they're gross. There's just other things in there. It's a basement. Everyone has everyone's basement has other things. Uh, it was hard to find, and that makes me think that it's a little sketchy. Shrouded in mystery. Yeah. I I could find a handful. One's based in North Dakota. There's a couple that are like subsidiaries of other big companies. It was an it was a weird Google rabbit hole. <laughs> um to find such a, a key component in a a really valuable industry. You know, if, if you if you were to Google, you know watch case manufacturers you're going to get inundated finding 
jewels for your movement was a little bit different experience. Yeah. Well, and, and that's turned out to be one of the problematic things for folks like Nick Weiss or even uh, RGM or uh, I can never remember. Is it RMG? R- RGM, I think, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Now that you've said it, I don't know. But that's been, a that's been you know, <coughs> Hairsprings, um, you, you know, some of the more complicated parts have wound up being a difficult thing for these, uh, you know, folks aspiring to make mechanical watches in the United States. Rubies is one of them. And and, and part of that is, is the, the expense. You need... Number one, the capacity to grow them because they're grown like sapphire. Then you need the capability to, and when I say capacity, it's, it's literally space to be able to to you know cultivate these things. Then you need the capability and technology to ultra high tolerance laser cut these tiny tiny components, and then. Find a market for them. Just tin foil and and high capacity lights, bro. That's the one. Just a lighter and a spoon. You got this. <laughs> uh, but the re like what I'm finding like it it was just an interesting void in the world of urology for me. Where there's so many things with with appropriate effort, you're gonna find it. Yeah. This right. this rabbit hole kind of just ended for me <laughs> like fuck you you don't get to know this information yeah and and i'm, I'm almost wondering if these movement manufacturers have their own have, have their own dealers who who do it exclusively for them if they do it in-house it it's still a point of curiosity for me and I, i'm like i said i found a few one of them one like i said one of them was in in the u.s but a handful of others were these weird subsidiaries one of them was from a just a pharmaceutical company companies yeah it was it was odd well one day one day we'll have to get someone on who actually knows what the fuck they're talking about and they can tell us more about this so you know in terms of in terms of the rules in terms of the regulation i think that they're approximately clear as mud maybe more clear since 2017 a little then, more rigid since 2017 than they were before, um, and and maybe maybe less clear or more prone to manipulation. Um, with that said, I, I think kind of knowing what we know now, I know you've got some opinions. Uh, I maybe have some opinions too, but maybe we talk just a little bit about what does this mean. So we we. We learn as as we get involved with watches that Swiss Swiss made or Swiss watches is a significant thing. Carries weight. What mm-hmm. what as we sit here today can we kind of interpolate or perhaps even extrapolate in places uh, about this this thing? How does it affect us as watch collectors? Does it affect us? What, what are your takes on that? For for me. It, it has an effect in that if you see the Swiss-made stamp on a genuine watch, because I've I've seen I've seen some Frankenstein Rolexes for three fifty that say Swiss-made, three dollars and fifty cents, not three hundred and fifty, <laughs> and three hundred and fifty. Yeah, but yeah, you also can go that, much cheaper. Yeah, no, I've I've seen I've seen quartz Daytonas. Uh, those, those are the best. Real cheap. You can get them. I can get you a good deal on them. Uh, I found them at the uh, at the Best Buy Connex in uh, 
I don't know what the nearest city is, but it was at uh, Fob Airborne. <laughs> uh, there's Best Buy Connex there. They sold Rolexes. Um, for but the same price as the hoagie, the, the ham and cheese hoagie on the cooler. It was more expensive. <laughs> ham's cheap there. The hoagie, the hoagie was more expensive? No, the Rolex. Ham's oh, okay. cheap. They get, it's okay. trash. Uh, so to me, Swiss Made is a stamp very much like chronometer, very much like water resistant very much like any of the other stamps that have been codified and controlled to you, put on you, you the mean dial it's, of it's watch. jargon it's it's jargon right it is it's a stamp of quality not necessarily a stamp of value and and i think there's a there's an important difference there um and when you say value, you don't just mean monetary value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I mean specifically not monetary value. The Swiss made stamp at the six o'clock of your dial means something, right? It's, it, it makes it inherently more valuable because it, it had to be earned. Some steps had to be taken. Steps were taken. Right? Very specific controls had to be met in order to get there very similar to a chronometer does a chronometer really mean anything no it just means that it's more precise it's been measured to be more precise yes it's more valuable in that it's a it's a more precise instrument does it mean anything does it make a watch cooler yes does it make a watch cooler to you who knows maybe yeah yeah it's but it's very much it's 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 a difference between hundred meters of water resistance and 600 meters of water resistance is the delta worth it for for me sometimes it is well and oftentimes there's not even a delta right we talked mm -hmm. about you know iso certification many 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 episodes ago and and the the at the end of the day many 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 watches that are not iso dive watch certified could be we suspect maybe should be and maybe, yeah, and maybe should be, and, but they're not because you've got to go through these things. You know, famously, Jason Lim from Halios. Yeah. Um, I don't know that he's said this, but other people have suggested that he told them that his latest set of watches, the Universe and the Fairwind, could qualify for Swiss-made status. Uh, and I don't know if that's true or it's not. It's probably expensive to get there. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know, but the idea being... It's it's just a word. It's just a set of words that you put on the watch because you've done certain things that you're not under no obligation. Like mm -hmm. we said, in in order to be quote unquote Swiss made, you've got to put Swiss made on the dial. So that's the deal, right? It's a self licking ice cream cone. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it yeah. Rolex could could stop doing it. Monta could stop doing it. Christopher Ward could stop doing it. But they continue to do it because it, it there's something there. There's there's meaning there. That's not where I draw meaning from. It's a cool feature. It's a cool touch. It's a it's an amenity that doesn't really drive my desire. But I think you know I, I was going to talk about those those watches that could qualify. I mean, and I don't know you know. But also, I, any of his watches could also qualify for diver. But yeah. he hasn't. He's not going to pay the money for an ISO certification That's because right. it's it's bordering on cost prohibitive for smaller companies to do it. Yeah, 
So big companies with a lot of cash, with a lot of liquid capital, control the market on these certifications that you, you effectively buy and do what you've been doing anyway. Do kind of the market standard for production, the industry standard for production, but you get a little, you get a cool stamp or badge or, you know, take your pick on things. Yeah. And, and for me, it's, it's cool to have. When I look at any of my, <clears throat> any of my watches and I pulled out a handful of watches cause I, I wasn't sure if we were going to, going to do any side by side compare what, what we we're going to do, but I've got some watches that say Swiss made on them and I've got a Bok talk on the table and I've got, uh, an EMG on the table and, all of these watches are of varying quality, but none of them, for me, the the Swiss made isn't a, isn't a game changer for me. isn't isn't even a conversation point in comparison for any of these watches. Yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's interesting. I think we came in. I think we came into watches, you know, both of us sort of really started cutting our watch collector teeth in about 2015. Um, you know, prior to that, you, you know, we're seeing this surge of watchmaking in the microbrand scene, the small company, the democratization, as, as mm-hmm. we, we referred to a couple weeks ago, of of the industry. Um, and, and so there was a, just a lot of stuff that was happening kind of at or immediately before when we, we come into our own in terms of understanding the industry. So I think it's easy for guys like you and me who sort of, you know, got, you know, into the rabbit hole, you know, heads up your ass at this time when there was so much happening to say, well, Swiss made actually doesn't mean anything to me. With, with that said, for you know, 50, 70, 80 years before that, it was a really powerful statement. And I think with, that, a, with some breaks, there's some important breaks in that continuity. Well, well obviously you've got the quartz crisis. You, and, you've got the quartz crisis and the you, you've got prior to that when they were producing garbage watches and the American watch industry was kicking the shit out of the Swiss because they were making these railroad accuracy watches that were just tits. They were on fucking point and Switzerland was shipping over these watches that were just trash. And then you well, see a transition. And, and apples to apples, <clears throat> I think it's unfair to the Swiss industry to say they were producing trash, right? You've still got, you know, some of the best craftsmanship in the game, but but a different, but a different focus, they're, they're, right? Their mechanical... Their, their mechanical focus was less so. And so, and so with, with that said, that whether or not we uh, feel the strength of that is maybe irrelevant to the fact that, which is like you said, right? It does mean something. Uh, and it means more. I think the more you get into the watch game, the less it means. You know, we, we come in and we start collecting and talking about watches privately in 2015 and then later start podcasting about watches. And then a short time later, uh, for instance, just for instance, uh, Grand Seiko, SAI, uh, breaks off Grand Seiko from Seiko, right? Yeah. And, you know, in many ways, uh, 
I think we'll look back and see that as a really important moment. Um, now we have this company that sells five to ten to even more thousand dollar watches that are in every sense of the word luxury timepieces and they're coming out of japan with you know movements that compete in every step of the way uh, or every step of the uh, process to swiss watches finishing you know as good if not better than the best swiss watches in the world so we've our our pov is one of this expanding world oh we're in the golden age we're living it right now with that said if you're just a dude on the street who uh has you know one time uh flipped through an article of uh you know some watch magazine at your dentist's office you probably hold a, a, a not unreasonable expectation that swiss watches are the best watches and and so you know, there's a difference between folks like us and folks like you, uh, as the general, as there, uh, in terms of your understanding, than there would be from a general public person. I guess is my point. I don't know, and I think you're right. I w- I would think that the general public, in mass, is unaware that luxury brands like Tudor, Rolex. Patek are Swiss brands. Have you have you gained the feeling that we didn't give ourselves enough time to talk about this episode? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would I would argue though they're not aware that they're Swiss. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps. I wouldn't I, I don't know where they would think they're from, but my guess is that they wouldn't think they're Swiss. I also wouldn't guess that they would think citizen, and I think most people in mind, the general consumer market, citizens a you know, a mid range watch yeah and probably the only obtainium for the general public i wouldn't guess that they think it of uh, think of it as a japanese brand perhaps yeah that that could be right i mean citizen more so than seiko uh is very i shouldn't say very but it's oftentimes in their design language i i would argue european so yeah yeah i think they've taken a lot of like the the traditional american designs and Andrew, I think... We're, we're out of time, aren't we? I think very sadly, we, we probably need to wrap up for the week. Probably um, not sadly for those of you listening. I'm sorry you had to listen to us. That's right. The six of wax you... Wax poetically. The six of you that are left, uh, we do appreciate you being here. And I expect six DMs in the morning telling us, what about this topic did we miss on? Are there, are there any interesting ideas, uh, things that we got wrong? Certainly, if you... Uh, correct me on my pronunciation of the Huguenot of the Huguenots and or the Huguenots. Either way, if you correct me, I'm gonna tell you to fuck off. But other than that, but feel free to correct him. <laughs> other than that, you know what? What did we miss? What, what big things? What big things did we miss? Or or what did we get wrong? Because we we undoubtedly got some stuff wrong today. Um, Probably not. Well, let let us know because. As we sit here today, we've got about 10 marked topics that we didn't get to. We've got a, a ton of brands that we didn't talk about. And and we could have talked about a bunch of brands kind of in detail about how they fit into the system. So what, what more on yeah. this topic, if anything, do you want to hear? Andrew, other things. What do you got? I got something good. Hmm. And it's only good for those of you mostly in California. 
It's a beer. For Father's Day, my wife got me a really great gift. She scoured the bottle shops of Portland for Russian River Brewing Company beers, specifically Pliny the Elder. And she got a lot of bottles. I maybe shouldn't even say on air how many bottles she got because she will get blacklisted from those bottle shops for purchasing so many. Um, but <coughs> in addition to getting some Pliny, so to several Pliny the Elders, which I drank and so enjoyed. For those of you unfamiliar with Pliny the Elder, look it up. That's not my other thing this week, but look up the beer uh, should you ever get an opportunity to enjoy it. Easily uh, another thing any other week in its own right, and perhaps has been. Perhaps. This week, my beer of choice was blind is blind pig it was so it's a beer i'll, I'll just read the label uh it's a prohibition era uh-oh turn sideways uh prohibition era term for a speakeasy the very first brewery uh, for russian river was named blind pig uh, and it was located in temecula they fell in love with ipas and hops there because that was really what was available uh the Blind Pig IPA is generously hopped with hints of citrus, woody notes, and a lingering bitterness. Just keep refrigerated and consume fresh to best enjoy this beer's intense hop character. As with, as with all, all hopped beers. Yeah, and all Russian River. And, and Russian River does a lot of dry hops, so if you age it more than about 30 days, just pour it out. If you leave it in the sun for more than about two hours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so, so Blind Pig was similar to Pliny the Elder. Which makes sense because it's a Pliny the Elder is a really simple, simple uh, malt bill, really simple hop bill, very simple, but in its simplicity, complex beer. Uh, really great hop layering. Blind Pig was similar, but just a touch darker. A little bit darker grain bill. Toasty. A little bit toasty, a little bit hoppier, a little bit, a little bit more bitter finish than citrus because because pliny finish is really bright yeah. and citrusy yeah. blind pig finished a little bit heavier uh like a little bit uh, some darker hop flavor more of those like really dank hop flavors that you get and it was delightful i knew that's exactly the word even before you made it, the d it, sound with your what with your else mouth. could you call it it yeah. is just such a refreshing great summer beer it's only six and a half apv they come in pint and a half or pint and a quarter bottles only i mean for an ipa that's that's conservative yeah that's conservative i mean you you ring in for ipas between like six and eight so yeah regardless it was bright it was citrusy it was refreshing but it had just some of those those dark resiny hop flavors that were just so good so for those of you who who do come across Western River and you're looking for Pliny, grab the Blind Pig if that's what you can find. Should you come across any Russian River beer, buy it. Buy it. Also ask. A lot of places don't put it out because they don't want to sell it to people who don't know what they're buying because their their uh, their infrastructure to distribute is really minimal. So when they get a case or a half case or a bottle in. They don't want just some asshole to come in and be like, oh, it's okay. 
<laughs> it's, like, it's like going to an AD. Okay, you don't even have to get some some credit there. You just have to ask. You just ask. Knowing to ask is the credit that they. You know what? You've earned it. That's right. That's right. Having having the question will in and of itself give you the credibility. Yes. Yeah. So when you go to the next bottle shop, just you know check in with them, see if they have any Russian River. If they have Pliny, obviously get it. Blind Pig, go for it. Pliny the Younger is also very good. Another another beer worth uh worth another thing week, but. Maybe my other thing this week is just Russian River. If you find it, buy it, drink it. You'll love it. Don't age it. Uh, when I was selling beer, I found a Pliny the Elder in the back of a cooler of this this rural convenience store that fancied themselves a bottle shop. And it... <laughs> I was so mad. I've heard this story. I was so mad. And this is probably like 2016. And I find it and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to buy this beer. I don't care. Uh, they're going to sell it to me or I'm going to leave with it. Um because you just can't find find it up here. Russian River doesn't distribute this way for the most part. And I looked at the date on the bottle, and it was five years old. And I asked them about it, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we're saving it for a special customer." And I said, "Just pour it out. There's there's no you you are now just refrigerating trash. That's what you're doing right now. You ruin everything. <laughs> <laughs> you ruin everything. Oh yeah." I, I was looking, when I was found that beer, I was actually looking for a bottle that I had sold them the previous year. So it must have been 2017. I was looking for a bottle that I'd sold them the previous year that was also similar. It's not a, a beer that you age. I was looking for it to tell them, look, I'm not going to sell you anymore because you still haven't sold this one that I sold you. It's pretty special, and you ruined it by aging it in your cooler for no reason. <laughs> I did find that bottle, but I also found a five-year-old bottle of Pliny. Wah, wah. It's aged. It's not. It's ruined. Aged to perfection. Don't age dry hopped beer. You just don't. The acids mellow out and they melt and then it turns to trash. I've got another thing. Do me. So my other thing is a TV show, unsurprisingly, because I love talking about TV shows. And your family's gone. And my family's gone. Uh, This is a television show that is, its second season has just come out. It is set in the Z Nation universe. And if you don't know what Z Nation is, Z Nation is a mediocre, at best, sci-fi, S-Y-F-Y channel uh, zombie show. It's not great. Nor is it terrible. And it's not my other thing. My other thing this week is the Netflix original. I think it's Netflix original, whatever that means. That's that means like they Swiss. bought the first season and they right. produced the second. <laughs> That's like Swiss made. Yeah. Uh, it's a Netflix original uh, and it's called Black Summer. Uh, the first season of Black Summer came out one and a half, two years ago, something like that. Long enough ago that I forgot that I'd watched it. Uh, and it is, in my mind, good to excellent. Yeah. It's good to excellent. Uh, I was trying to describe it to someone recently, and I said, it's like a Cormac McCarthy book in that it is all sort of Emotion, facial expression, very, very stoic characters, or sometimes ridiculous, over-the-top characters, um, without a lot of explicit plot development. Um, yeah. You, you get these sensations uh, more often than you get any explanation about what the sensations are. So the dialogue is oftentimes... Uh, Poorly written. 
I wouldn't call it poorly written. I, I think it's wonderfully written, but it, it's it's sometimes not as directly related to the things that are happening as you might expect in modern filmmaking. Anyway, second season just come out. It's set in the winter versus the first season, which is set in the not winter. Uh, <laughs> this uh, summer? <laughs> perhaps. I, 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 I it felt hesitate. springy, autumn-y. I hesitate to like say transitional summer because period. Yeah. in any event, not winter. <laughs> Uh, this season's set in the winter. Uh, I've just finished it. Wow. I've just finished it. Uh, and it was incredible. Now, look. Full disclosure, full fair warning, I should say. Do not watch this with your kids if they're under the age of about 30. 30. Yeah. Because <laughs> it is extremely graphic at times. It is often very scary. Like, scary enough to make me a grown-ass man uh feel uncomfortable makes my palms sweaty makes my palms sweaty that's a a, a, an accurate description uh bear in mind what i do for money (laughs) it can be intense it's not so much jump scares uh occasionally you get a little bit of a jump scare it's more just tense and there's sometimes these prolonged like hallway scene you know if you know what i mean by the Mm -hmm. hallway scene where uh, it's like, oh my gosh, really close. Anyway, I love it. I think it's, I think it's really well done, and totally different than any other zombie flick I've ever seen. It's, it's a series, it's not a flick, but well, it's even different than The Walking Dead. And I, and I think you know any of these zombie TV shows. I, I think what Black Summer did really uniquely, and I, and you talked to it, um, the the plot progresses without you realizing that the plot progresses. Yep, almost like you're living it. The dialogue occurs. It's poorly written in that it's not quick. It doesn't progress the plot. It's exactly what you'd expect that asshole to say in the midst of a zombie catastrophe. It it, it pulls you in in a really unique way that other zombie TV shows, for me, have not done. Yeah, so when I hear you say poorly written, I, I take that as a value judgment. I, I don't think it's poorly <clears throat> written. I think it's brilliantly written. Yes, it, it um, poorly is not the right word. Po- poorly written in that if what we were doing was scripted, it would not be great. Right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it, it's, 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 it's really uh, reality yes. sort of. It, it, it's, it's hearkening after reality as opposed to the magic of screenwriting. It, yeah, it pulls you into it. You're not you're not hearing coral all the time. You're you're living the zombie apocalypse with them. Well, that's all I got, great. Andrew. That's all I got. I got zombies. I got Swiss made. Swiss made of, zombies. Ooh. In fact, I heard actually the zombies from do that they movie. Ski? Uh, I think they do. And I heard that they they qualified for Swiss made uh, labeling. Wow. Look at them go. What else do you got? That's it for me. I'm out of things, man. Hey, thank you guys. For joining us for this episode of 40 and 20, the Watch Clicker podcast. Why don't you check us out on Instagram at 40 and 20 at Watch Clicker? That's where we post all of our pictures. <laughs> check us out on our website. So, watchclicker.com, every single episode of the podcast, but also weekly, multiple times per week, new reviews, uh, things that you might like to read uh, and, and look at. Always new reviews coming in hot, too. And don't forget to tune back in next Thursday for another hour of watches, food, drinks, life, and other things we like. Bye-bye.